Welcome to the Cambridge Tech Podcast, talking all things technology from the heart of the UK's tech capital. Here are your hosts, Faye Holland and James Parton. Hello, I'm James. And I'm Faye. So Jim requested met today's guests at Cambridge Tech Week earlier this year and thought that they were really interesting and recommended that we invited them onto the podcast. So we have done. Um, Synaptic have developed a unique revision and homework tool that automatically corrects answers to open-ended science questions and gives meaningful feedback. So today we're delighted to welcome the co-founders, Dr. Raj Ayer and Kavitha Ravindran onto the podcast. Ladies, we're delighted to have you with us today. So welcome. Let's start with you introducing yourselves. Hi, I'm Kavita, I'm co-founder of Synaptic. Hi, I'm Raj, uh, co-founder and CEO of Synaptic. So why don't we learn about the company? What does Synaptic do? Synaptic is an AI-based web app, and it is an auto-marking engine for independent revision of descriptive answers with instant feedback for students. What this really means is for students who are, who have to wait for a teacher to mark the descriptive answers for the feedback to know what went wrong and where they actually went right in the answer, Synaptic gives them that instant feedback. It gives them a score, but beyond that, it also tells them what part of the answer was correct, what they got wrong, and what concepts they missed out. So it's the instant effective feedback which is most useful for students. So that's what Synaptic is. I think it's really interesting, isn't it? Because we, we were talking before we started the podcast and, you know, we've all had children, have children. And, you know, the the mode of learning now seems to be very much around it's a quiz and you get it right or wrong. So it's really good that they actually get some kind of feedback. So was that the main reason that you started the company? It is really because I have been uh, teaching for a very long year, very long time now. And what we have when it comes to GCSEs especially is students have a lot of resources for recall and to get instant feedback on recall, which is which is really good. But that is only one word or multiple choice questions. And it does not help students apply their knowledge, which is actually is what needed for an exam for them to get those high scores. So students quite often resort to revision guides, which has a list of questions and they have to self-assess. And we know teenagers are not really good at that. Or they have to wait for their teachers or siblings or parents to decipher the mark scheme, which is not in a student-friendly language, and for them to give the mark, which is, again, not instant or effective. So, yes, so that's exactly, that was a gap in market where students knew all the concepts over the course of three years, but they failed to apply that correctly in the right format in which an examiner would deem correct for them to get the mark. So that's exactly why Synaptic was founded. And I guess this is a positive thing for teachers as well, right? Because, I mean, I'm I'm lucky enough to be married to a teacher, so I know the workload is incredible. So, you know, offloading these kinds of tasks so they can focus on more value-added interactions with the pupils must be a really positive thing. Absolutely. You're spot on in that. Today, we have so many teachers leaving the profession and workload is the top of the list over there, the reason why they are leaving. And it is not just the time they spend marking. So, for example, to give you an idea, 
a class of average class size is 30 in UK secondary schools. A class size of 30 uh, teacher marking a mock exam would take about an hour and a half to two hours just to mark it. That is a teacher who has spent a good four or five years in teaching service. They know exactly what the mark scheme, etc. is. And then they have to spend another hour and a half to, to analyze that marking, to see where students went wrong, what are the concepts they've missed out. So that question level analysis adds on to the time. And this time is not available during the teaching hours. This time is the time spent, as you just rightly said, so over the weekends, half-term breaks, summer holidays, the time that the world feels that teachers have as time off is actually where yeah. teachers spend that time in marking, which is beyond the working hours. And I don't think there is any profession where employers have to work outside their working hours to still satisfy the job. So yes, spot on. It's, it's, it's golden dust for teachers and teachers who from day one who have engaged with Synaptic would say that this is exactly the tool that they have been waiting for. So you're a teacher. That's obviously where it came from. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your background? And Raj, were you a teacher as well? No, actually, I came from a very technical background. So I trained as an engineer back in India, um, after which I worked as a software developer developing very different to what we're doing now, but developing an interface that would analyze log files that came out of massive machines that produced silicon chips that, you know, all of us use in our digital devices. So following that, I came over to the UK, uh, joined the University of Cambridge for a master's in computational sciences. That was followed by a PhD at Imperial College in London, again, a PhD in computational sciences, uh, but with neuroscience as the background. After which I spent a lot of time working both in academia and also in the NHS using computational and data science methodologies to derive insights from data. So that you know, clinical data, the brain, how that works, the data that came out of experiments, how do you analyze that and derive insights. And then in my last job, it was clinical notes that uh, paramedics wrote and how do you derive insights from that. So that's my background, always been very, very maths focused and computational development, mathematical modeling and uh, software development and so on. So very different but I think that's why we make the perfect team to be doing what we do, right? Yeah, uh, it sounds like a perfect match. Yeah. <laughs> How did you come together? How did you meet? Oh, so we go back many, many years. We okay. met at Cambridge, right. um, you know, 15, 16 years ago. We were uh -huh. studying here at the time. And we remained very good friends. And, you know, we became mums together. We had kids together. You know, our kids are just a year apart. And actually, that was... Well, the longer story is, is very interesting and maybe for another time. But the short story is we actually started doing something for our kids because our children go to state primary schools, but they are very high ability kids. And very often uh, my son would come back home and he would sort of say, oh, yeah, I finished my work in 10 minutes. And then after which I was sitting coloring. And I was like, OK, you know, I can't afford to send you to a private setting because I'm an academic at the time. So what can we do to help you? And, and you know, other kids of his um, caliber. And so then, you know, we got together, kitchen top discussion, tabletop discussion to say, what can we do to just help our kids? And uh, we actually started doing something a bit different to what we're doing now, which was developing high quality content, you know, to challenge children of, of higher ability going to primary schools. However, as part of that project, what we did do is speak to, I don't know, hundreds of parents, teachers, heads of schools, 
children themselves across primary and secondary. And when we analyzed all the data that came from that market research, we identified that there's this huge gap in the market, which Kavita rightly focused on saying, all that kids and teachers are able to do is fall back on multiple choice questions for feedback-driven assessments and learning. Whereas there is a perfect solution to address this problem. Although 70% and more of exams consist of written responses, why should children have to fall back on, on MCQs, for example? So then we got together and we said, look, she was a subject matter expert. She put together, you know, a set of uh, questions and marking rubrics. And I put together an app, you know, an MVP. And we put it out there very quickly to teachers and, and kids. And that really just, you know, grew, it grew traction quite quickly. And that's when sort of Synaptic was born. Uh, and we knew that there was a big problem. There was a huge need in the market. And, you know, here was a, a solution to, to that problem. So before we move on and talk about the company, I've got to go back and got to pick up on the fact that you've been friends for so long. Yes. Because, you know, we, we, we obviously talk to a lot of startups and, mm -hmm. you know, VCs, and they always talk about the team and the skills. Never come across like a, a, a friends that have actually started a company together. So this is okay. really interesting, I think. So, I mean, how, how does that work in practice? Do you manage to separate being friends separate from the business you know how do you manage conflict and all that kind of stuff Have you, you've obviously found a way to make that work i'd be really fascinated to understand how that works so we of course come from completely different skill set mm -hmm. background our experiences is completely different but however our vision is aligned mm. our wavelength in thinking and mindset and frequency is is very much aligned. Like Raj could very well go ahead and say, yes, I'm pretty sure this is exactly what Kavita would think and vice versa. And it would be nine out of 10 times it would be aligned. We are, I think, very, very good in having our friend hat and work hat on and yeah. separating that. And I think that has exactly, that's exactly what has worked for each other. I would like to believe that we are uh, very good in critiquing and accepting that as well and not taking it personally. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I think that's exactly what has worked to kind of make, keep that separate, keep the personal life and the work life separate. Um, as founders, I think it's quite hard to kind of uh, get uh, to, to, to achieve that goal anyways, because you're working 24 hours and then you're yeah. working with a friend and our, our, oh, our husbands are friends as well. Yes. The, so they know each other very well as well. And our children are friends as well. So it's, it's more, it's much more than a company. It's, my, it's, it's beyond that, right? So it's, it's, I think it's the, it's the aligned goals. And to be able to kind of uh, see to work and friendship on in its own and take it from there. How big is the company right now? It's a very small team. It's uh, six of us. Because it must be a really interesting company culture, the way that you set the tone as the leaders. Yeah. It must be a very family orientated. We can tell for the benefit of the audience, they're having a lot of fun recording this. So you can tell the energy that you both have with each other. It's uh, It must be a fun place to work. But you say that. But yes, I do, I, I'm I pretty sure that anyone who walks in would not feel like it's a family owned business. Mm. I think they would definitely see the sense the vibe between us. And the level of understanding that we have. Mm. But I think equally, each one of us, like all the six of us have a voice. Yeah. And we understand that it's not like when somebody is putting the opinion, it's for the company. It's not for me or for her or mm. for someone else who's working. It's for the company. And once you have that mindset, I, I feel that you're not going to let anything else come in way to align that thought process. So, yeah. Well, I think we've been incredibly lucky in uh, also recruiting yeah. just the 
I think the top notch mm. people. It's luck, but also maybe to a certain extent, we should pat ourselves on the back to identify the the talent that the the people uh, had, and um, they've become part of this family, right? So they also are just totally aligned. They know exactly what we are working towards, not just for today and tomorrow and the sprint planning and so on, but also the the much larger vision. So everybody's on board, which is so crucial to to uh, such a small startup. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I love it. You know, I do think it's that common purpose and the fact that you came together to solve a problem, which was for, for your children. So I also have to ask, how do your children feel about, I assume they're the guinea pigs for every single thing that you do. They were, they were. I think Raj's uh, oldest son, because he's in secondary, probably yeah. still is. But I think they really, when we started off in primary, oh my God, they were doing the videos for us. Yeah. They were doing like the math video, the science video and everything. And they were very much involved. And then yeah. they saw it kind of moved on to something else. Any event, any exhibition, my daughter, she would knock in, she would give the leaflets. I think she's far more confident going and knocking on the door a year back and saying, right, okay, it's your child in GCSE. She's, she's 11 now. So she was 10 when we did that. So yeah, I think so they are part of it. They see this. And I think two daughters and one daughter and a son over there, I think it's equally important for them to see their moms are going out there and working and giving so much of their personal time, so-called, to work. Uh, but yeah, I think kids and husbands have been part of the journey so far. Yeah, no, it's absolutely brilliant. Okay, so we could probably carry on talking about that for, for a while, but let's <laughs> let's go back and talk about the actual offer. So you've got the pilot going. How's that going? How did you get engaged with schools? What are your plans to um, keep progressing? So, I mean, to answer that, um, we're going to kind of take a step back to say, uh, to start from where it all, when we launched really. So as Raj said, the prototype version that we launched literally had a text box for students to answer questions and a model answer for them to compare. And that itself, students came back with a lot of positive feedback because they struggled with actually structuring all the concept and to put that on paper in the right format to that particular question, particular command word that was in front of them. So just having that model answer and for them to be able to self-assess, that was a big success. So then we took it to the next stage. So we have already engaged with teachers at that point because we were taking student and teacher feedback from early on, which then led to us releasing the revision apps and Aptic revision app in April last year. But we still wanted to engage teachers. So we put the revision app in a structure which teachers could use in school. And yet again, over there, we just wanted teachers' feedback to know if they would use a tool where the auto-marking was not 100%. It is quite easy for us to ignore the fact that human marking is not 100%. But when users are interacting with the machine, they expect the machine to be accurate, to be 100%. So we really wanted to see what teachers' reaction would be. And also for them to lead the features that they feel are top requirement when we actually launched the school app, which is exactly what we did. So we launched the school app November this year and again, completely teacher-led, as I said. And so, yeah, so the pilot program stopped because we now have a school app. Pilot program was really successful. Uh, the feedback from the teachers over there is what has led to the school app. So on the school app now, we have a trial period where teachers can use it for free two weeks if they need to extend it that's fine for uh, me say a maximum of two classes so that we can engage with the teacher really well and iron out any issues and they can feed back to us as well and following which teachers can subscribe if they feel yeah this is the product I want 
And those are the teachers who believe in the innovation because that is a new technology that we are putting in there in the education system, which is not there. So teachers who are uh, tech savvy, who believe in the vision that we have, are the ones who adopt that. Uh, and they subscribe instantly. If not, we have teachers who choose to stay on the freemium plan, which means that they can continue using the app with two classes for however long they want until they feel it's ready for them to put their money in. If you are a startup looking to grow in Cambridge, the Bradfield Centre offers a range of flexible membership packages which put you in control of your office and home working mix. There's a vibrant, collaborative atmosphere, on-site cafe, plenty of green outside space and regular member social events. We also offer a range of high-quality meeting spaces for hire and for tech event organisers, our auditorium, lakeside pavilion and atrium spaces are perfect to bring your communities together for in-person and hybrid events. For more information, visit bradfieldcentre.com or call 01223. 919 It's a gap in my knowledge in terms of how schools buy IT. Mm-hmm. It sounds like from your description there that individual teachers are actually purchasing the app and using the app without necessarily the school adopting it across all of the teachers. Is that, is that how that's working? suggest the way in education system where nothing is you can't say this is what happens there's Uh, no one blanket rule right it's the same for edtech procurement across as well now because ours is very particular for science Mm -hmm. it's not a whole school product it is for science okay and also it is very much teacher-led i could very well go to a ceo of the mat and the ceo of the mat could say right okay the science faculty is going to use it but the uptake might not be as quick as we would expect it to be. So we go both ways, but we have found more success in going to the teachers, yeah. going to subject leaders, heads of science, assistant heads of science, or any teacher who are out there looking for new technology who would go, yeah, this is what I want. Yeah. And once they are convinced, then they have the capacity because it is the head of faculty in the science who decides where the budget needs to be allocated. And if they don't have the budget, but they believe in the tool, they will find the budget. Well, it's the perfect model, isn't it? Because you'll get teachers advocating for the for the product Absolutely, as well. absolutely. It's very similar to um, the old way of enterprise software. Buying was always controlled by a procurement team. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you get things like Dropbox or Evernote and all these other apps that suddenly appear individuals are buying them and you get that whole shadow IT kind of thing you know happening in the enterprise world it sounds exactly the same kind of go to market strategy that you guys are following absolutely absolutely mm, yes yes it's a huge market though and going to every individual faculty of science is is kind of going to be a little bit of challenge so what so what are your plans to reaching them is it going to conferences is it you know is it a question of just scale so you're start, you starting with a specific area definitely as you said it's a, it's a large market and teachers are saturated by the amount of technology that has come out post covid especially mm-hmm. Uh, by the marketing emails that they get. 
So it is really finding those very innovative new ways to get to the teachers. And my job really for now is to kind of get this tool to as many teachers as possible for them to just try it. It doesn't matter if you're subscribing or not. I just want you to try it and share your feedback. That's all I want. So yes, yeah, so we go to a lot of events, a lot of conferences. We go to a lot of specific uh, STEM conferences as well, which are targeted because you have all the science teachers over there. Uh, we also use all my network that I have kind of established over the 13 years of teaching that I've done, uh, my colleagues, my ex-colleagues, the STEM network, the COGSI group. So it's a lot of pockets where these science teachers reside and we try to penetrate that. We, of course, also go to the top. So we also go to the uh, education leaders in maths, to the CEOs of the maths and to kind of get their attention as well that there is a technology that truly uses AI, which not a lot of edtechs do. Um, but this is the way that you've all been saying that teachers are suffering with marking workload. Here is a technology, here is a solution for it. So come and see it. So yes, so it's kind of approaching all available channels, really. So I want to go back to Raj, actually. So, so Kavitha, you've just said, you know, it's really, truly using AI. Are you able to tell us how it's using it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so unfortunately, what has become of EdTech is a technology platform that hosts, you know, videos or, or learning materials, whereas, you know, true technology is using artificial intelligence or other sort of tech-driven ideas. And we genuinely use artificial intelligence to do something huge uh, and, and solving this huge problem. Another very common use case now is, uh, you know, tech providers using AI to provide personalized, in quotes, learning journeys, but actually you don't really need artificial intelligence to do that. There's, you know, simple algorithms that will help with, you know, uh, rule-based systems that will help with doing that, you know, uh, personalizing uh, learning journeys and, and outcomes. But uh, we truly believe that, I mean, this is, you know, really using uh, AI to its full potential to do something that's massively going to change uh, uh, education, teaching and learning. So, Yeah. <laughs> So because you're using AI, is there any issue from a school policy perspective around effectively outsourcing some of the responsibilities of a teacher to an artificial intelligence? That's a great question, in fact. And um, there might be, to be very honest, I'm I'm very sure that, that there is a sect, a segment of teachers who are scared that this explosion of technology is going to take away their jobs. But the majority of the teachers today are in tune with what is happening and understand that unless education is in line with technology, what is going to happen is they if they if at all they lose jobs, they will lose jobs not because they adopted technology, they will lose jobs because they fail to understand technology and how it can actually benefit them and reduce the all the monotonous job that they do, which actually a machine can do, and they can have the time to do what they signed up to do, which is teaching, learning, being with students, facilitating their learning, and really enjoying that because that's exactly why every teacher signed up to the profession. Yeah, absolutely. To answer your question about policies and stuff, I don't think there are any regulations in schools um, against the use of artificial intelligence, but I'm pretty sure that's coming very, very soon. Um, there are also no regulations in place for companies um, to produce ethical AI. And I'm 100% yeah. sure Mr. Rishi Sunak is working very hard to get something <laughs> out there, which is a very, that's a 
very, very debatable topic, right? Um, how much are you going to curb innovation by putting these regulations in place, which is really sad for innovative companies like ourselves, but also, you know, it does put innovative companies like ourselves in check to make sure that we're producing AI that's explainable, transparent, made from, you know, data that has been sourced in an ethical manner. Yeah. And, and we, you know, for full transparency, we tick all of those boxes. We don't actually use any of the the technology that has recently been in in, in uh, conversations uh, because of the inherent limitations of those you know language models, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm guessing, uh, well, have you got to the point now where you can quantify the time savings or you know the learning impacts on the children? You know yeah. those data points. Have you got all of that information? There? Yes, I think short answer is yes, absolutely. Uh, long answer is it's a bit challenging to uh, put in place you know, high quality experiments and uh, almost trials in place. But we do work with uh, UCL Educate Ventures, which is a very popular name uh, in helping edtech companies to become very, very evidence-based. Um, so hopefully with them, we'll be able to put, you know, some sort of um, evidence out there. Both. So there's two big things that we've got to prove, right? One is, yes, there's a genuine uh, saving of time yeah. for teachers. But actually for us, what's more interesting is what are they doing now with that time saved? Yeah. How are they more effectively um, using that time to improve student outcomes? Mm. Um, which is slightly difficult to measure, but I'm sure, you know, we'll come up with, with something. Um, and the other is, you know, how effective is uh, learning on on synaptic how effective is that to improve student outcomes that's the most most obvious one to do but yeah certainly something that we should we should be working on we've already worked with exam bodies to actually just prove that our uh, auto marking works uh, well and um so we we did a, a like a, a study with uh, high stakes examiners and machine, uh, synaptics machine marking was compared with um, the marking that's seen between um, high stakes examiners and the synaptics marking as well within what's called the iterator variability that's seen amongst high stakes examiners, okay. which just means that, you know, you can't tell the difference between if an examiner marked it, a human marked it or the machine marked it. So, so there is a, there is a path going from kind of study aid through to actual examination quality marking with the technology as well? Then. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So with, with the data that we uh, get, so, you know, as schools and uh, just children use the app, we get lots and lots of data. Actually, we just did a post on LinkedIn recently, which, you know, says that we're almost reaching a million student answers, which is, you know, all descriptive in nature. No multiple choice. Yes. No, you know, those kind of things. And so we want to be able to start, you know, crunching all of that data and derive insights from that data. And we, we'd want to get teachers involved. We have a survey in place. Uh, we want to know from classroom teachers and also from, you know, heads and, and SLTs on what kind of insights we can get from this data that will help them to deliver the most effective in-class teaching. So, yeah, we can't wait to you know, in a very evidence-led way, be able to present actionable insights to teachers because now they've been freed of all that uh, marking time and also time that they would have otherwise spent in deriving these insights. But actually, this will all be done automatically by the machine for them. All of these student answers are held with exam bodies. And after the results are published every summer, the exam bodies then send a long report to heads of science to say what the misconception of 
students across the nation was. How students performed on question one, question two, what was the average, what was the most missed and everything. It's a document that is sent to heads of science and then the new academic year starts and that's it. So teachers go back to doing what they were doing without even knowing that that GCSE curriculum that they have just delivered to an entire cohort over the course of three years, what was the impact of it? How do they even know if they are doing that again this year, what are the changes they need to make? How do they need to change the way they are teaching to make sure that it's more impactful and this cohort does not make the same mistakes? So we are trying to do something in which that data is shared by the entire education community. It's there for teachers if they want to dip into it and derive whatever they need from it and not pocket it in somewhere where it is not reachable to the people who actually need it. So that's that's you know that's kind of it's 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 not one of the main things, but you can kind you can kind of see right. You, it's democratizing not only the technology, but also making sure everything that we are doing is actually alongside the entire team who are working day in and day out. You've got a byproduct of it that is just coming out to, to benefit. So so I mean I think you've given some really good examples there about the types of things that you're going to do next. But I, I'm going to go back a little bit to purpose. So how do you know that you've succeeded in this? So are you on a mission to educate the next cohort, the next generations of scientists or, you know, STEM individuals? Are you facilitating that? You know, is there like a big mission here as well? Yeah, um, I think I think the mission really is to bring personalized learning to everybody in, in an accessible format. When I say accessible, again, you know, our app is available to those who have a device and have internet connectivity. But at least it's making personalized learning available to those who have this, but at a much cheaper cost compared to private tutors, for example. And also the pedagogical research that that what we do is based on is practice makes perfect, right? We've heard that since we were born. And so practicing on similar questions that you will be assessed on, um, there's huge amounts of scientific evidence to show that that leads to improved outcomes. But again, today, kids have to wait for days or weeks to get that kind of feedback. In the classroom setting, it's impossible. They probably get a score and, and you know, that's it. Um, and maybe a high level feedback on where the entire class went wrong, what they did well at. However, with Synaptic, if one is learning on, on the Synaptic app, every single question you get detailed feedback and that's just it's it's invaluable children are able to course correct as they are learning they don't have to wait there's no delay in in, in the feedback and we've already discussed the the benefits from from a teacher's perspective so i think our mission really is to be able to you know help all kids from all backgrounds just do the best that they can right now the way we are bringing this algorithm, this auto-marking algorithm to the market is via GCSE app. And it's for science, but that's our starting point. We want to be able to do this for lots of other subjects. So actually the problem that we're trying to solve, there's a term for it, so it's automated short answer grading, um, ASAG, as it's you know popularly known in, in education. And it's an unsolved problem. It remains an unsolved problem for years, for you know, for decades, uh, 
exam bodies as well. Everybody's been working to solve it. So hopefully, dare I say, that we're on the way to providing a pretty reasonable and reliable solution to this unsolved problem. If we're able to do that, over the next 12 to 18 months, we want to be able to make available our automarking algorithm as just an API that can be plugged in to any other provider right. uh, who, who offers you know, exam-style questions. Mm-hmm. For example, if you wanted to put up a course on Coursera, yeah. what you can do right now is use an LMS, a learning management system. You upload your coursework and then to provide any sort of assessment, all you can do is automated assessments is only multiple choice or single word answers. But with Synaptics API, you can give a question, give a set of marking rubrics that you as an educator would use, and then the Synaptics algorithm should be able to learn how to mark it from the next second. So that's the big vision. <laughs> so, so for you to offer the API, do you also need to train the uh, model in the curriculum and the content of the person using the API or how, how, yeah, where we does that? So we're still working that out. Okay. Um, right now, yes. So we have questions, we have rubrics, but then we also have marked student answers. So student answers that come in via our apps get yeah. independently marked by our own subject matter experts. And there's a whole you know human in the loop, but algorithmically we're trying to solve and get rid of the second part of the problem. We shouldn't have to train the algorithm to mark at a high accuracy with, you know, marked student answers. So with just question and marking rubrics, we should be able to already mark at a very high accuracy. So that's the goal we're working towards. Yeah. Again, it's it's a difficult thing to do. That's why nobody has done it so far. Right, yeah. I but mean, <laughs> solve that, hopefully, then, yeah. Because, we'll I mean, my, one of my questions was going to be, like, international expansion and how complex yeah. would that be, having to understand the, the education systems in other countries? But if you, if you break that dependency, yeah. then obviously that then becomes very simple. Exactly, exactly. Going back to the introduction... We first came across you at Cambridge Tech Week um, earlier on this year. And so how have you found the Cambridge ecosystem? Um, how, how is it working for you? Absolutely fantastic. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, we already had the Cambridge connection because we were, uh, we graduated, both of us graduated from Cambridge. Um, so it's just, it's fantastic to come back to like uh, alma mater and and be involved in a very different way, not as students, but actually as part of a, an entrepreneurial ecosystem. And it's it's amazing that the different kinds of companies that there are, and and you know the different things that we've been kind of picking up from from other companies and the tech and and yeah, the the, the tech week itself was just uh, amazing in terms of just you know picking up on our own. Uh, brand awareness among our peers and uh, I mean you guys have been brilliant as well so yeah it's been really good fabulous well thanks so much for taking the time out very much appreciated thank you thank you so so much much for having us it was lots of fun (laughs) I caught up with Professor Simon Saunders visiting professor at King's College London after the recent CW tech event I asked Simon to tell us more about it. CW Tech is one of the flagship events of the Cambridge Wireless community. And in particular, CW Tech, as the name suggests, is a more 
technical, detailed, focused scope where we really try and give our members the opportunity to dive into, into more detail than would normally be possible in these sorts of events. That isn't to say it's wholly technical all the way through. It very much links in the industrial impact, the policy landscape from government, uh, what it means for funding opportunities and so on, but it's doing it from the perspective of the technology. The theme of CW Tech this year was the unavoidable complexity of future wireless networks. And this came about because the organizing committee was, uh, we were casting around for what, what particular area, what particular topic would be hot. And we realized it wasn't so much the, the individual topics or technologies, it was really the meta topic of how do we tame all of the complexity, the many options available to us. Um, and we thought we'd look into where that complexity is coming from, how we expect it to continue to change in the future, and what options do we have available to us to, to get on top of that. I was also interested to hear how they came across the event theme, his observations on the talk by industry stalwart Moray Rumney, and details on the panel he chaired. So this event in particular looked at the the 30-something years of mobile deployment history today, we've got this, this huge complexity to deal with. We had some presenters feeling that we've actually gone too far. So in particular, Moray Rumney, who's been around in the industry for a long time, was likening it to the world of, of nuclear reactors and some of the disasters that have happened over time uh, and pointing out how that was a potentially a somewhat inevitable result of complexity and suggesting we, we need not ways of managing complexity, but to actually reduce complexity. Um, I wouldn't say that was the universal view at the event, but it was, was an interesting view. And I chaired a panel looking forwards to the future um, and had presentations from Ericsson and the University of Surrey and a startup called Weaver Labs looking towards the next few years and into the 6G era. And perhaps unsurprisingly, we had a whole list of a dozen or so additional technologies that are gonna further add to that, that complexity. And anyone interested in finding out more can go to cambridgewireless.co.uk. So in this week's news, we feature Darktrace, Johnson Mathy, QPT and GAN Systems Inc. and IQGO. First up, cybersecurity world leader Darktrace saw its share price rocket almost 20%. A review by EY of the company's accounting procedures ended with an all-clear. An investment bank, Panmure Gordon, listed Darktrace as a buy with a target price of 6.50 pence a share. Preliminary results for Q4 and full year to June 30 delivered against expectations. Darktrace forecasts financial year 2023 year-over-year growth of at least 31% in revenue. The group added 396 net new customers in the fourth quarter for a total of 1,362 in the entire financial year, bringing its customer base to 8,799, up 18.3% year-over-year. Johnson Mathy, a global leader in sustainable technologies from its Cambridge and other UK facilities, has teamed up with power industry specialist Dusan Enability to jointly develop integrated solutions for hydrogen-fueled power plants in South Korea. 
In a separate deal, JM has also signed an investment agreement with the Jiading district in Shanghai to help accelerate the hydrogen economy in China. Dr. Mark Zhu, president of Greater China at Johnson Mathis, said, This is a landmark investment for our business as we build our footprint in the US, Europe and now China, cementing our presence in all three major hydrogen markets. The driving range of electric vehicles is set to be significantly boosted through a transatlantic alliance between Cambridge UK-based power electronics company QPT and GAN Systems Inc. in Ottawa. QPT recently announced that it had created the drive control and sense technologies to maximise GAN, gallium nitride, transistor performance and overcome design challenges in the 100 kHz to 20 MHz frequency range for high power and high voltage applications that use hard switching. Jim Witham, CEO of the Canadian partner, said GAN Systems Inc. was impressed with the technologies that QPT had developed. He said, They have unlocked functional improvement in performance, resulting in a highly optimised GAN solution for the EV market. In partnership, GAN Systems Transistors and QPT technology could dramatically change the GAN market, so certainly one to watch. And finally, geospatial software business IQ Geo reveals soaring first-half revenues in an upbeat trading update. Revenue for the first half is expected to top 20 million, 117% up on the same period the previous year. And that brings us to the end of this week's podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you next week. Today's show was produced by Carl Homer of Cambridge TV and supported by our media partner, Business Weekly. The Cambridge Tech Podcast is available on all major podcast platforms and on cambridgetechpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review. It will really help others discover the show. Supercomputing is becoming an essential tool of scientific and medical research. Operating award-winning data centres, KO Data is proud to host Cambridge One, the UK's most powerful supercomputer, accelerating health research. With computing power and space available and excellent connectivity to Cambridge and the cloud, KO Data is ideally placed to support advanced computing organisations of all shapes and sizes. Get in touch today at kodata.com slash contact.